0: Isaiah 62 is a song of a great wedding day where God saves Israel to Himself. She's given His righteousness, and it shines out from her like a light that will not go out. When God truly saves a person, their life endures as a shining light. Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry sponsored by Church Partnership Evangelism and its local missions fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. If you're looking for a place to give to that is taking the gospel in direct and personal evangelism throughout the world, would you please consider Church Partnership Evangelism? You can learn more about how God is using us by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. In Matthew 25, verses 1-13, through the Lord Jesus tells the parable of ten virgins waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom. Five have oil in their lamps to burn, and five do not. To understand the parable's meaning, keep in mind the ten virgins are not brides, they are bridesmaids, waiting to celebrate a great wedding. Also, the light in their lamps may reflect the words of Isaiah 62, a righteousness that shines forth as salvation, burning as a torch. Note, there seems to be, actually when you look at this story, no difference between the wise and the unwise on the surface of things. All of them have their lamps. All of them have oil that's burning with them. All of them are gathered in the same place to wait. All of them are found sleeping together as they wait. That is, they're just living life together. But when the announcement comes, the foolish ones do not have what is sufficient to go with the wedding party to the feast. They're out of oil. and They want to borrow what is needed from the wise, and the wise can't give it to them. They don't have oil for them to borrow. Please note the outcome of this. The wise are brought into the feast, and the unwise are left outside a shut door. Those left outside will claim relationship to the groom. Lord, Lord, open to us, they say. And the groom will say, I don't know you. And the door to the feast remains forever shut to them. That's the story. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Let's draw some lessons from this parable, and here's the first lesson that we should understand. The visible church of professing Christians is a mixed crowd. There is the invisible church that makes up those who have been redeemed in heaven and redeemed on earth. This invisible church that is the bride of Jesus Christ or those who are going to enjoy him forever and ever. But the visible church, the local church, the church as it is presented on earth today, throughout the world and in our community and in this place is a mixed crowd containing those who truly know Christ and those who do not those who are ready to receive him when he comes, and those who will find out that they have no light in themselves with which to meet him when he returns. It's kind of sobering. It means that for all the work of the church, for all of its pastors and all of its preachers and all of its preaching and all of its teaching and all of its organization and all of its missions work and all of its outreach, all of its Bible studies and Sunday schools and prayer groups and programs of discipleship and ministry, all of its meals together and celebrations of the Lord's table together and gatherings by the river for baptism together, for all of that, for all of that, many will still be found in the church, the local church, not sufficiently ready for the Lord's return and left outside of His eternal kingdom at the last. I have to admit that it's surprising to me at times to discover How little individuals have heard or understood the primary message of the gospel, though they've been exposed to the word of God being taught and communicated through preaching and study and hymnody for long periods of time. To discover in the press of life or at the end of life that they didn't know or live yielded to the good news that Jesus had fully covered the cost of their sin and that nothing else could repay it or make it up. That there was no work that they'd missed out or no work they needed to do if they had totally and only trusted them, to find that they had rested their hope in a raised hand or a mental agreement with a doctrinal proposition, but that they had no believing connection of heart to Christ himself. They had a propositional salvation instead of a personal Savior. To find that they had no great love for Christ, then what made them feel good in a moment or sentimentally settled at any moment in time when they needed it, And yet there was no demonstration and is no demonstration in their life of a vital, personal, ongoing connection to Him. No connection to His ongoing forgiveness and cleansing. No connection to His ongoing speech and command. No connection to His life-giving Spirit. No release of the self in a hold of faith upon Him. No true comfort in His presence and so they don't seek it out. No submission to His Word. Rather... To find that at the end there's more enjoyment in the company of others and a more commitment to follow the determinations of their own opinions and to seek out His will. More gladness to discuss their own ideas than to discuss together and bask in His word. All of this is stunning and shocking. But here Jesus tells us how it will be. Many will be unprepared for Him in the end. Many in the church Many will not have the burning light of bright fellowship with them. And as you read this and you consider it, you realize that you have yet to understand the depth of the spiritual blindness that is possible in places where God sends out the greatest light. It's possible in life to be in the midst of the church, to be surrounded by wise virgins and be a foolish one. And the Lord Jesus is revealing that. And he didn't say, nine wise virgins, one foolish one. He gave the understanding that this would be a predominant and clear problem and a concern. Here's another one. There's another thing we can learn from this passage. If you are not prepared to meet the Lord Jesus when he returns, it's because you're not preparing for him. If you're not prepared to meet the Lord Jesus when he returns, it means that you're not Preparing for him. It means your heart and your mind are not presently set upon him. And if your life is not set upon him now, you won't cling to him and set yourself upon him when he comes. It appears as though both the wise and the unwise virgins look much the same. At the same time, although they looked much the same, there was something different at the heart of these two groups. The wise group was together looking for the coming of a person. I think this is the difference. They were looking for the coming of a person. The unwise were looking for and enjoying the present experience, and they were looking for the conclusion of a party. (laughs) They were looking for the social conventions that were involved. They were looking for the experience and the social excitements or benefits that were involved in it. They were more engaged in the joy of the event of the wedding without any real interest in the bridegroom himself I'll give an example of this you have a young girl who's somehow been taught to fixate on the romantic notions of marriage. Maybe she figured it out with her kin and her Barbie. Who knows? You know, and she's grown in this idea and she's watched some different romantic cartoons and it's made her mind think about these things. And she began to read romance novels, and then she used her allowance to buy bridal magazines and scour through them. And she's planning out and has been planning out for a long time, some spectacular wedding. Maybe. Maybe she's dreaming in some way to get away from the home she's in to another home, but she's got her plans laid out and she has her fancies laid out and all she needs is an acceptable young man to come along and play the role as a groom. And He comes along and unwittingly he's caught up in her fancies. He doesn't understand all that's been bundled up in her own expectations. But in a sense, he is secondary. He certainly needed to play out this thing and to realize these dreams she has, but to a large extent, he's simply a means to an end. He's the means to an end of a a bright and wonderful wedding celebration. He might be the means to an end to a picket fence life or to a domestic dream that she's gathered in around herself, any number of things. But you're not sure as you look on at these things if she's so much in love with the man before her as she is in the idea she has for herself with the man. She hasn't given herself to him so much as she's acquired him as a means of realizing her own significance or playing out her own sentimental dreams. We have to ask ourselves if Christ is a means to an end for us or if he's the end. We have to ask ourselves if he has a utility to service our emotional needs and our desires or our comforts or our sense of subtleness in life or whether he is the source of all being to us and he's the Lord of all life to us and he's everything to us. Paris Reed has has a wonderful sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt. I've mentioned it before. Google it sometime and listen to it. It'll change your life. He says the essence of humanism says the chief end of all being is the happiness of man. The essence of Christianity, two-heart Christianity, is the chief end of all being is the glory of God. And yet very often in the church, we teach a Christianity which is basically Christ did everything for your happiness, for your satisfaction, for your fulfillment, in order to please and satisfy you. And it's just humanism in Christian dress. It looks similar. You've got the lamp and you hang in the same places, but you don't have the same oil burning within it and not an oil that lasts. This life in the church that we live together is all about or supposed to be all about the Lord Jesus. The reason we're supposed to meet together is because the Bible says where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. And so we meet together so that together we may enjoy him and may experience him. The Lord Jesus, working in your life, reveals himself in a different way than he does in my life. He answers your prayers in a different way and prompts you in different ways and reveals himself from a unique perspective. And I want to be with you so I can learn more about him and his ways. The Lord Jesus grants to his followers various gifts in the church. And so some of you have residing within you, abilities energized by the power of the Holy Spirit, which reveal the full panoply of all the gifts that the Lord Jesus had when he walked upon the earth. I don't have that full panoply. I might have some, in some measure, empowered by the Spirit, but only some. The church we gather together in order that we might experience a greater and greater complement together of the expression of Christ's life in us and Christ's life upon us. And it's, it's him that we seek, at least... That's the reason we're to be together. We celebrate the Lord's table together because every part of it is to remind us of Him and what He has done for us. He's given His life for our sins and He's provided for us the basis for which we can be washed in His blood and cleansed of all of our sins. He's given His life to us in order that we might live in Him and live by Him. He's the wine that we drink and the bread to sustain our lives. He's necessary for everything that's good and right and spiritually deep within us. He's life in us supposed to have this meal together so that together we can celebrate what he is to us. And in the celebration, we encourage one another in himself. It's all about the Lord Jesus, or again, it's supposed to be. But you know, it can be just about us. It can be just about me realizing a point of significance, having a place of community, feeling a place of belonging, having people to hold me accountable so that I can learn to do the right things and develop a good ethical life. It can be about just developing a support system for myself, to meet the challenges of life and to find encouragement and comfort. And it's wonderful that the church offers all those things. But it ultimately can be nothing more than that. Find people that I identify with and I have things in common with or we share the same political opinions with or we share the same ideas about certain things and we gather together after the service to find out and test one another to see if we've developed the same understanding of what our social condition is or whatever it is. And that's not what the church is about. It's not what Christ has come among us to live among us. It's not why he's the head, and we're to be his body, it's to share in common his life. It's not to sharpen the swords of our own ideas and understanding and evaluations. It's for us to come under his word and let him come and work upon us and work in us, and then together give us the sermon on how we might live as peacemakers, as presenters of the mercy and goodness and justice of Jesus Christ and his gospel to the ends of the earth. It's supposed to be all about him. I want to direct you now to a different website at the end of our broadcast than I usually do. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 commands that the Christian test themselves to see if they're in the faith. In answer to this command and with the desire to bring Christians into a sound and true assurance of saving faith, we've developed a website and a book for this purpose. Go to SavingEvangelicals.com and take the test and order the book by the same name, Saving Evangelicals. I can't think of a more important book for our day. Again, thanks for listening to the Bread of Life. Until the next time, may God bless you.